Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 272. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Jack. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 272 you're listening to. My guest today is Alberto Hernandez, who's an audio engineer, mixer, and technician here in the lovely San Francisco Bay Area. He's worked in a variety of areas, including music and film and television, and he is a former staff engineer of the now defunct I'm very sad to say that the the closed down and defunct fantasy studios. Yes. The building is still there. Nobody's in it to the best of my knowledge. So yes, sad, but true. We're going to talk about that and uh, many other things, of course. So Alberto Hernandez coming up here on the working class audio podcast. All right, friends, grab your coffee cups. Let's talk about your money. Hmm. I know you don't want to talk about money, but we're going to talk about it anyway. Actually, before I tell you about that, I want to tell you about this great documentary that is on PBS. It's the Master Series. I think that's what it's called. It's uh, it's on Miles Davis. It's incredible. You know, I'm big on music documentaries, and uh, Miles Davis is definitely uh, very popular in our household. Yeah, check it out. I'll put a link in the show notes. You, you just got to watch it. It's fantastic. Tracks Miles from the very beginning to the very end and talks about all the albums that he, he's done and the different phases of music that he's been through or went through. So, yeah, Miles Davis, you, you got to check it out. Okay, money. Let's talk about money. All right, so... I'll just let the, the cat out of the bag. Spoiler alert kind of a thing. Alberto in today's interview tells us about a piece of software that he's using to track his money. And because we did the interview like two weeks ago, I heard him say that and I had never heard of it. And I immediately went and signed up and have already loaded all my transactions in. I'm talking about uh, QuickBooks Self-Employed. Now I know QuickBooks makes a bunch of different products. And maybe you're using one of them. But this is not that much money. It's like seven bucks a month or something. And maybe it goes up to 15, I think, after six months with the link that I got for you. But it's really cool. And I'm going to tell you why it's really cool. And, you know, if you're not in the mood to switch software, no big deal. But this is great because it tracks your cash flow of your personal and your business expenses. You know, if you're one of those types of people that's mixing expenses on a card, this will, you know, allow you to get away with that. Uh, so it'll track your cash flow. You can track your personal expenses, your business expenses. Uh, obviously, you can track all of your accounts, credit cards, checking account, all that kind of stuff. It will allow you to send invoices. It will track your mileage, and it will do uh, it will do estimates on your taxes, your quarterly tax payments, and your year-end bill that it estimates you're going to pay. So. At the end of every year, because my wife and I use an accountant, because we have a somewhat, you know, mixed tax situation, she's got the corporate gig, I got the freelance gig, and there's all the monkey business that all of that generates. So in the past, what I've done is I've just done a quick spreadsheet of 
the expenses in certain areas and sent that to the accountant. Now with this, I feel more confident in the expenses I'm sending him and I can send him a proper Schedule C expense report. And that just, you know, that just is the bee's knees for me. That that tells you how far I've come. Like I, six years ago, I don't think I would have been excited by that, but I am now. So what I'm going to do is put a link in the show notes and that link is going to get you 50% off for six months. So it's going to be seven bucks a month and then it's going to go up to 15 after six months. This is a referral link in all honesty and transparency. So what does that mean? That means that you get 50% off and Working Class Audio gets a little bit of money for a referral fee uh, for sending you there. So if you're cool with that, great. If that completely offends your sensibilities, then go another route and get there. Either way, the software is fantastic and I think it'll really help you get a good grip on your money. Uh, there's a great app that goes with it. And, you know, when it when things come in app form too, it allows you to really kind of get it in your face there since we're all looking at our phones all the time, right? So that's it. QuickBooks Self-Employed. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. 
If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. All right, let's get straight to it. Alberto Hernandez here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Alberto, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Matt. Well, first of all, you're talking to me from, are you in Berkeley or Oakland? I'm in Berkeley. I, uh, I still keep an office in the Fantasy Building, so I have a little production room on the sixth floor of the Fantasy Building. And to the listeners, Fantasy Studios closed, what was that? Was that last year? Yeah, last summer. I think September 1st of 2019 was the last day of operation. Yeah, huge loss to the community. Yeah, it's really sad. I mean, it was historic studio, fantastic rooms, and amazing equipment, of course, and countless, countless records were done there, and it's it's really a loss to the, to the Bay Area and to the global recording community, I think. But you still maintain a studio there on the sixth floor of the, is it the Saul Zantz building? Yeah, exactly. The Saul Zantz company built the whole compound originally to facilitate the studios and the record label and also his movie production companies. Right, right. So how long have you had that space there? So I've had this space since early 2016, April 2016. And you use it kind of as a, an adjunct to working at Fantasy? Yeah. So all of us staff engineers actually became independents in 2016. And at that point, even though we were the first call guys, we started to branch out back into working out of the studios in the area, depending on what projects were coming at us. And I felt like I needed a room where I could do pre-production, I could do some editing. If the project didn't have a budget to go to a studio to mix, that I could do some hybrid mixing here with some outboard gear that I have and then my Pro Tools setup. What kind of a space is it size-wise? It's an office that I've treated quite a bit with packing blankets and velvet curtains and foam to make it sound decent for mixing. It's probably about 10 by 20. Hmm. Okay. Okay. And with fantasy closing, my understanding is when it closed at that point, it was controlled by the developer that owns the building. Is that correct? That's right. So how did the decision about closing the studio affect your space there? Was, was there any kind of like, well, I don't know what's going to happen now, now that fantasy's closing, is the building going to go away? Or was there any questions in your mind about that? So I had a five-year lease signed, mm. so they had to honor the lease. So even if the building sold, my lease would have been transferred over to the new owners, and uh, I would have been able to keep my space. My lease is up next year, so renegotiating that will be up for grabs, I suppose. But the same people that own the building that attempted to sell it continue to own the building. So hopefully everything will be, will be fine, and I'll be able to renew my lease. Well, so, and I don't mean to make this about fantasy studios, but I have to ask, mm. what the hell is going on with the, the space? Doors are locked and it's just sitting there, from my understanding. And what happened to all the gear? It was decommissioned and I'm not 100% sure. I think it was sold as a lot and it just all moved out. Hmm. There's some great chambers there. Yeah, the echo chambers are fantastic. I tried to, to press, when I heard that it was closing, I tried to press for getting in there to take impulse responses of those to share with the mm. community and... I got no love for that. I got no response. <laughs> yeah. I think when they closed the studios and they were selling the building, I don't think that they really knew what was going to happen to the spaces, mm -hmm. especially with new owners taking over the building. You know, if the 
studio spaces were going to remain studio spaces and if somebody was going to take them over. And I think they didn't want to shoot whoever may have taken them over in the foot by making that publicly available, although they are fantastic sounding chambers. And if it does come down to them deciding to tear the studios out or tear the building down, I might reach out to the company and do a similar thing and just say, hey, can I have half a day to go in there and take IRs of everything and, you know, at least be able to archive or uh, keep alive the legacy of, of those chambers, spread them with everybody. All right. So back to you. How did you get into audio? <laughs> what what was your entrance into the into the world of professional audio? I mean, in, into pro audio. I originally I started out as a musician. I started playing instruments when I was in elementary school, sax and guitar and bass, etc. And played all the way through college. And then I started recording my band's rehearsals so that we could work through stuff. And then, well, really into into pro audio. I just realized that I had a passion for music and for sound, and that there was a a whole other side of, of making a recording. There was the artist side, but then there was the technical side. And I originally studied mechanical engineering. Mm-hmm. So when all of a sudden I realized that there was this whole acoustics, electrical engineering component and, and technical side of it, it really kind of started to scratch that itch for me. And I started thinking about how I could get into that. And at the time I was bartending and doing a little bit of live sound at the bar and that kind of thing. And then I realized that I could actually do a school path for it so i decided to go back to school and i went to expression which at the time wasn't owned by sae or anything like that it was owned by i think it was a swedish or a norwegian guy when it first started once i graduated from there i'd had a friend who was a guitar player and luthier and he had played with the swing and utters and a bunch of other bands and he introduced me to steve beecham who had a small studio in the city and I started interning and assisting for Steve, and then Steve started throwing me gigs, and then Steve put me in touch with Brad Kobelcheck, who was running 880 at the time, when John Luke Casey still owned it, mm-hmm. and kind of got me an internship there, and that was kind of my first dipping toes into into the studio world. And for the listener, 880 that we're talking about, Studio 880, eventually became Jingle Town, which was owned by Green Day, and they eventually sold that. And I don't know what it is now. I don't know. It's kind of a multitude of small studio businesses, if I'm correct. Right. Yeah, I'm not sure whatever happened to to Jingletown once in the last four or five years. But the guy who had introduced me to Brad and Steve and all those guys put me in touch with James Willits, who was an engineer at Fantasy. Mm. And James was going to move back to the East Coast. So he said that they were kind of retooling and restaffing. And this is right when the changeover from Concord owning the studios to the property group that took over the studios, uh, took them over and they were kind of restaffing. So he put me in touch with Jeffrey and then I came in for interviews and met everybody and kind of started as an assistant for the first year there and then worked my way up. What did you find challenging about those early years at Fantasy and being an assistant? I was still bartending at the time. So it was the balance of being able to bartend and stay financially afloat while I was assisting and, and burning the candle at both ends. You know, I would be in before any session and set everything up for all of the sessions and then be in throughout the day and facilitate any assistant work that the sessions needed and then break everything down and then go off and work, sleep for a couple of hours and then go back to the studio and get it going. So the time management and the uh, energy management was a big challenge. But the time spent in the studio, even when it was by myself tearing down sessions and setting things up, it felt like a dream, to be honest. None of it felt mm. overwhelming or anything like that because I was really doing what I loved. And I was this whole time I was learning from all of the, the great staff engineers that were at Fantasy, but also all of the great guest engineers that came through and just seeing what they used on certain instruments or how they left their console 
set up from their makes or any of that stuff. So it was really just this great time to learn on my own from being a shadow of all of these great people that came through. Were there any great lessons that you learned about the profession of being an audio audio pro? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that made the biggest impact was especially being an engineer and being in that role, especially if there's a producer involved or anything like that, being able to understand that you're there to facilitate everything that's happening mm-hmm. and not necessarily there to put in your opinion or your two cents or talk about what would be better to do or not. And having this subtle approach to to really driving the session and making sure that everything went the way that it was supposed to without being overbearing or anything like that. You know, mm-hmm. the just the subtlety of being an engineer, making everybody feel comfortable and making everybody feel like the ship is right, but without having them realize that you're the one doing that. Yeah, that's a balancing act. Yeah. <laughs> if there ever was one. So as far as survival, we both know how expensive it is to live in the, in the Bay Area. So was that tough to financially carve a place out for yourself, bartending and being on a low salary, I assume, as an assistant? Right. I was really lucky. I moved to the Bay Area in 2002, so the economy hadn't re-exploded It was kind of right after the first dot-com crash, so everything was kind of starting to stabilize. But I moved into the apartment that I'm at now uh, in 2003, and it's in the Lower Haight, and it's a great location, and I love it. And luckily, I moved in there, and the landlords are fantastic. They're really supportive of the artist community, and they're kind of about that. So in the 15 years, 15, 17 years that I've lived there, they've never raised the rent exorbitant exorbitant amounts or anything that they've really kept it affordable. So that's been a huge help, especially in those thin days. Yeah. Where did you move here from? So I was born in Mexico City, Uh lived in Mexico City till I was about seven. Then we moved to Orange County in Southern California. And I went through elementary school, middle school, high school, and college. Okay. The first time down there. So you essentially grew up in Orange County? Pretty much. Lived in LA for a split second and then moved up here. Because I think I saw on on your LinkedIn page that you speak Mm -hmm. Spanish, German, and English. That's right. So my mother's side of the family is German. And when we lived in Mexico City, I went to a Swiss school, which was immersive German. And then in the States in high school, I took German and through college and all that. And then Spanish was all through mother language. <laughs> right, right. Have you found that your your language abilities have helped you in certain sessions? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There's Obviously, there's a large Latin American community in the Bay Area and mm-hmm. in all of California. So I've been lucky to be able to really communicate with people clearly in sessions that have a high quotient of Spanish speakers in it. And also a certain amount of cultural understanding, I think, is helpful Mm. as well in in those kind of sessions. And not just culturally, but understanding sounds they're going for, ideas, concepts, that sort of thing that can sometimes get lost in translation. Yeah. God, and I can only imagine if you speak multiple languages, it gives you the ability to do all of what you've just said. But it also gives you the ability to have communication and do audio work with people in those countries remotely Mm -hmm. in an effective manner that otherwise would be more difficult if you didn't speak the native language. Right. Do you ever do any uh, German mixing? <laughs> no, I haven't. Nobody's reached out to me to do it as of yet, to be honest, but I, I wouldn't be opposed to it. My cousins in Mexico, one of them, their wife heads up the publicity side of one of the large beer companies, and I do a little bit of post work as well, and she's tried to get me involved with doing some mixing of some of their promo commercial stuff and things like that, which mm. has been pretty cool. Now, when the crew of you that were at Fantasy for a period of time, you all were on salary. And based on what you said and what I've heard is that that changed at some point and you all became freelancers, right? That's right. And how did that 
change your world? How did that affect your world? And how did you, how did you cope with that? When we got the announcement, of course, it was frightening because it was moving from a world that we'd been, like I said, this happened in 2016. So, you know, we'd all been staff for about six years there, some of us longer. And all of a sudden it was this big change. You know, what was going to happen? Were the studios still going to call us? Were we going to be shut out? What was going to happen with the studios? Were they laying us off? to close the studios. You know, there were all these unknown variables, but we all landed on our feet really well, I think. Luckily, the studio still kept going for three more years. And even though we weren't staff per se, officially on paper, we were still considered that way by Jeffrey Wood, who's the studio director. So we were the first call guys on everything. And aside from how we were building the studios, we were still pretty much staff. But it also opened up the door to be able to build relationships with studios that we either had lost our relationships with or hadn't established relationships with. So I reached out to Pat and Jorge at Different Fur and went over there and got a tour and looked at it. And I talked to Howard Johnston a lot about the facility and kind of his days there. And it was really interesting to be able to connect his experiences with actually seeing it in person. And then also reached out to JJ Weisler at Decibel and went over there and got to check it out and done a couple of projects over there now. And similar things, I ran into Oliver DeChico, who used to run it when it was Mobius. And, you know, he told me a couple of war stories about that. So it, it really allowed us... I think, to just reestablish those relationships and really rebuild and reconnect with the community, not just from people that were coming to us from fantasy, but actually reaching out to people and reconnecting in those ways. How did you guys deal with health insurance? Were you getting health insurance? Yeah, we were getting health insurance through the staff position. So when that change happened, at the time, my wife was working in the service industry, so she didn't really have access to health insurance that way. So we went the Covered California route, and it was expensive, to be completely honest. I mean, we were paying out of pocket for our premiums right around 850 bucks a month. Wow. Yeah. When I was staff at Fantasy, you know, I was getting pulled right out of my check and it was a pre-tax deduction and it was around 300 bucks a month for the two of us. So it was much better. Luckily, she changed jobs and she works for the Exploratorium now and she's part of the union there. So we get our health care through that. But it was a tough couple of years of having a, a large overhead based on that alone. Yeah, that's a chunk of dough every month, Eight, 850, man. Yeah. Did your attitude about, or your attitude and your allegiance really towards fantasy, did it start to shift a little bit? Like, oh, well, okay, we're going to be freelancers now, so I could do whatever I want. I always kept a special place in my heart for fantasy, and whenever a project approached me that wasn't thrown at me through fantasy after we became freelancers, the first talk was, what's your budget and can we get you into fantasy? Because the equipment's fantastic, the rooms are fantastic, the facility's great, let's see if we can make it work. And then I would go to Jeffrey and say, hey, this is the budget the band has, this is what I'm thinking about timeline, do you think we can make it work? And very often we could make it work and we could bring it to fantasy, but I wasn't going to pass on the project at that point once they had essentially made us independence if the budget just couldn't bring it to fantasy. So... The Allegiance was still there and trying to get it there, but if we couldn't work it to make it happen, then I'd have to take the project elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So today, now that you have this space and Fantasy's closed and you're freelancing, mm -hmm. what is the bulk of your work made up of? It's less post-production than it used to be. I think because of the, the film connection that the Fantasy building had, mm -hmm. and also the ISDN lines that were there, and all of the post-history that was there, the Foley pits, my work when I was staff at Fantasy was probably about 70-30 music to post. Now it's probably about 90-10. So a lot of the post work has shifted. So I'll still get calls every so often to do voiceover, but it's hard to coordinate getting a studio to do a one or two hour voiceover or a place that has surround sound capability that's within, yeah, 
So the post side's been a little less and a little bit more difficult to to facilitate, but a lot of it is remote mixing. Mm -hmm. People will reach out to me and we'll talk concept and budget and then they'll sell me tracks and I'll mix them either in my room or if the budget's bigger, I'll take it to a studio and, and do a board mix there. Luckily, like I mentioned before, I've established relationships with the studios in the area. So there's still a lot of tracking and overdubs that are happening. Kind of business as usual, to be honest. How do you weather the slow periods? Rainy day funds. Ah, uh. Just put a little bit of money aside. Luckily, there haven't been major slumps. It is ebb and flow as always, but I've managed to stay relatively busy for the most part. Mm. And just being conscious that there are going to be the slow moments and really just planning for them. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. How do you plan for sessions? Like, do you have a process? Do you have a, is it a yellow pad and a pen or do you do you do it all in your head? Or what? what is it you do to plan for sessions? Everybody's got their thing. What's your thing? Talking to the band and conceptualizing what they expect and, and what they want, you know, whether they'd rather be in the same room together, being able to see each other, or if they're okay separating out and overdubbing everything. That's step one for sure. And then so first thing I'll do is I'll have a phone call with the band and I'll open up notes or a Word doc on my laptop and just start taking notes about their expectation. And then I'll start thinking which studio will be able to fit their needs. And then once I conceptualize what studio is going to work for them, I pitch them budget. And then if they agree, then it's kind of all in my mind as I'm going along. I like to show up for a rehearsal if I can to kind of hear the band and see how they interact and how they they play in in that kind of a situation. And then in my head, start to conceptualize where I'm going to put people, what mics I'm going to use on whom, what the drummer's kit actually sounds like. Does he have heavy dark cymbals or light crispy cymbals, that kind of stuff, and really start to build a game plan in my mind. But I'm I'm not much of a pad and paper guy. It's, It's usually all in my noggin. How do you handle budget rejection? Like if somebody says, whoa, that's that's way more than we could spend. Well, then it's about having a conversation about value engineering or figuring out what's going to make the most sense. Uh-huh. So if they approach me and they say, we want to do this record start to finish with you and we want to go into the best studio in the area to get it done and do a mix on 56 channel SSL and whatever, and then you present them the budget and you say, you know, if you're well rehearsed, this is what we're looking at for your 12th song record. And there's some sticker shock. Then you tell them, well, let's see how we can reconceptualize this. So maybe we don't do the mix at a studio. We end up doing it as a hybrid setup up here. And we do one as a test and see how it feels. And that'll save you the studio cost. And then also my room is dead enough to where I can do small overdubs in here too. So it's like, if we're going to cut shakers and tambourines, we can do it up here. We don't have to go into a studio for a day for all that. Totally. Or we got to do bass fixes. I'll bring my gear. There's certain things that I'll bring gear for, even if I'm doing a studio recording, so that I can match sounds later. Uh huh. So it's like, okay, if we have to do bass fixes, we can do them in my office. It's not a big deal. Reamping, I can I can reamp stuff after hours here and really crank it. So things like that can save on budget if need be. Kind of reminds me of watching these shows on HGTV when they're like Property Brothers, when they're showing people houses and they show, well, we could get you this house, but it's going to cost this much. Or we could take this 
piece of junk house and fix it up kind of thing yeah and do you know do it on the cheap what non-audio tools do you depend on like any kind of productivity apps or systems you use or things that one would not read about or hear about in the world of audio <laughs> i switched over to quickbooks self-employed to do all my bookkeeping and all my invoicing is it called quickbooks self-employed yeah it huh. is. It's it's like a small subset of QuickBooks, and it's all through online portal. But it's been fantastic because I can receive direct payment through credit cards, ACH, anything like that through it. So I don't have to worry about either getting a check mailed out and then the check getting lost in the mail or PayPal and any weirdness there or anything like that. It's just super easy. They get my invoice if they want to mail a check or do PayPal or Venmo. The instructions are there, but they can also click the make a payment now button and they can pay with a credit card or anything like that. And, Does it, and that's a monthly cost for you? Yeah, it's 10 bucks a month. And it's kind of a tax deduction anyway. Yeah. And then for direct bank transfers, there's no fee. And for credit cards, it's like PayPal, where it's 2.9% plus a quarter. So almost right. 3%. Pretty typical. Exactly. But you know, at that point, it's like, I'll eat the cost for the convenience. I mean, if, if I make paying me that much easier for my client, they're going to pay me that much faster. <laughs> QuickBooks self-employed. I'll put a link in the show notes, audience, so you can check that out. I'm going to check that out. Yeah, it's fantastic. And then realistically, honestly, my car, like I said, I, I take so much gear with me everywhere just because there are certain tools that I just like to have, mics, outboard, et cetera, that I'll just take everywhere with me. And being able to have a car that I can fit everything in is phenomenal. So what kind of car do you drive? I have a Tiguan, a Volkswagen Tiguan. Uh-huh. Is it boxy? It's boxy-ish. It's like a small SUV, but if you fold the seats down, it's something like 70 cubic feet of cargo space. Uh-huh. So I can fit, I use a Dynaudio BM6A Mark II speakers. Uh-huh. And I have a large Pelican case that I fit them in so that they're protected when I transport them. And I can fit that along with two 8RU racks, along with another large Pelican case that houses six Neumann microphones and then a bunch of other crap. Yeah, mic stands, you know, et cetera. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, just anything that I would need either at a mobile recording or in a studio that unfortunately doesn't have all of the tools that I need. Uh-huh. So obviously your gear buying decisions now are based on what you know the studios have or don't have. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's a big part of it. Absolutely. There's just certain things that you, you travel with all the time. Yeah. I have a couple of Millennium Media STT1 Origin channel strips. Oh, I used to have one of those. I love that. <laughs> yeah, they're fantastic. I mean, the guys at Millennia have really done a great job with those, and I love the dual topology of them, that you can have a nice clean solid state side or a tube side, and, and the DIs in them are fantastic too. What do you think audio pros should be doing to have a good quality of life? Good work-life balance. Man. <laughs> I think it's about knowing when to, when to take a break. Because mm -hmm. I think I love what I do. I feel really lucky to be able to do what I do professionally. It's something that I dreamed about doing for a long time and, and being able to support myself and my family with. And the fact that I can do it kind of blows my mind every day. And because of that, I have a tendency to overwork. I'll do 70-hour weeks, 80-hour weeks. And just go, go, go and t say yes to every project that comes around. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden I'll be exhausted and I'll have that feeling of like, man, I just don't want to go in today just from being exhausted and burning the candle at both ends. Mm -hmm. And it, I think it's really important to realize that either when you get to that point or if you can, before you get to that point to really pump the brakes for a second and say, hey, I got to take four days off and just kind of recalibrate, reground and, and really rebuild all that energy and all that enthusiasm because, you know, you can wear yourself thin and 
not necessarily become resentful because I, I don't think that there's any resentment to it, but you know, just get to that point where you're just like, I'm over this for a second. I need to step back and refocus. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. Do you feel like you're compensated for all those 70-hour weeks properly? Or is a lot of that just you kind of really putting in the extra extra time to make it make sure the project is right? I think the compensation is proportional to the amount of work. If there's a passion project that I think needs some more editing and I know that there isn't budget in there, I'll go in and I'll do a half day of editing just to make sure that it's right. Uh-huh. For sure. But I think that the the benefit to the project is payment in itself because the project is gonna speak for me as well for the work that I'm doing and everything. So even though it's not financial compensation, it's it's still speaking to my work and my labor and et cetera. And it's about pride in what I do and making sure that what I'm putting out there is standing up to my standards. What do you think Audio Pro should be doing to best serve their clients? What's your strategy? I think one of the things that's most important is to take your ego out of it. Hmm. I always tell people when I'm mixing, especially if they, it's an attended mix, I tell them, like, there's no ego here. If you have an idea, if you have something that you want to explore, I'm happy to, to go down those rabbit holes with you. Understand that it might take us four extra hours to mix this. And depending on what we worked out scale-wise, whether it's an hourly versus a per track or something like that, it might blow up the budget for this song, but there's no ego. I'm happy to go down those paths with you. I'm happy to try something else. If I'm doing something you don't like, please tell me so that we can readjust and recalibrate and make sure that we're fulfilling your vision or going beyond your expectations for your vision. Hmm. I find that people really appreciate that. And I've had people comment that, you know, that they've worked with mixers where, well, this is my sound or this is what I do. And hopefully that's not me at all. You know, I, I really think that it's important to collaborate with the artists and make sure that inevitably they're satisfied and excited about what they end up with. Yeah. And I guess there's, there's a lot of examples. I mean, there's no one way to do it. Cause I mean, there's certainly people out there that do the, this is my sound kind of a thing, but then right. what you're talking about is more kind of the, the working class Steve Albini type of service thing where it's like, what do you want? What can we do? <laughs> sure. We, we serve all needs here. But not to say that if somebody comes up to me and says, here's all my tracks and I don't know how to put them together, I'm happy to also take them and put them together in what I think it should come out as if they're giving me that latitude or if they're really approaching it with, here's what I have, make it what you think it should be. I'm also happy to creatively contribute in that capacity and really take it in a direction that they may have not considered before. How do you enrich your, your existing audio practice to get new ideas, to 
be inspired to continue on? What What is it that makes you tick? I think it's a combination of a lot of different things. Constantly finding and listening to new music or not even necessarily just music, but sonicscapes as well and film and television and hearing things that all of a sudden pique my interest or perk up my ears that, wow, what was that sound or how did they do that or what's that processing? And then kind of reverse engineering that. But then also having conversations with other engineers. Mm-hmm. I think it's, we're all kind of big nerds and there's nothing great than getting together with a couple of guys and gals over a couple of beers and really talking shop and just like, oh, I tried this out recently and it really blew me away how great it was. Or I tried this and it was awful, but I could see how it could apply to something else. And just constantly collaborating like that and sharing ideas and concepts. I mean, I, it, it's so much fun and it's really helps you get outside of your own perspectives. Do you have any routines in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening that you like to do that help you kind of prepare for whatever it is you're going to be doing that day? The morning, first thing is coffee and then a little walk with the dog. And that just kind of settles out my morning. And then I always say it's audio palate cleanser. It's NPR on the way home in the car and on the way back, (laughs) wherever I'm going. And it's just like, I don't listen to music on the way in. I don't listen to the project that I'm working on on the way in. I just kind of want to be neutral when I get there and be ready to to go and really approach beginning at a neutral standpoint and really be able to, to start an unbiased day. If I'm rocking out in the car on the way to a session, my ears might be more fatigued and more blown out than I wanted them to be. So stay away from that. What do you do outside of audio that you enjoy? Hobbies or like do you hike? Do you take photos? What do you do? I love going up to Tahoe, snowboarding, getting away, that kind of thing. It's difficult because day trips are, they're doable, but especially now I'm just like, "Ah, if I'm going to go up, I'm going to spend the night and take it easy. That's a lot of fun. Riding a bike in the morning, I feel is really fantastic. It always feels really great. I feel more energized in the day if I can manage to get up at 5 a.m. and go for a little ride. It just feels really great. And then I love relaxing and going to see a movie and that sort of thing. When you started, as far as mentors Who did you depend on and who did you gain insight from that really kept you going? Adam Munoz, who was one of the staff guys at Fantasy, and Jesse, Jesse Nichols, they were really fantastic guys to to really be under for those first couple of years when I was assisting. Their approaches are so different, but they're Mm -hmm. both great engineers, and it was really great to see that. And then they were really kind, too, with sharing their knowledge and sharing their experiences and inviting me to be in sessions and inviting me to be involved that was just really phenomenal. And then Jason Carmer, who I assisted on a few records, just was really fantastic to work with and to see his workflow and, and, and his approaches to everything. And he's really different compared to the other two guys. And then Enrique Mueller, Enrique Gonzalez Mueller, really as well. I assisted him on a bunch of stuff. And, and, and again, his approach is so different from everybody else. I mean, I think between those four guys, I got to see so many different concepts and approaches and just yeah just between those four guys their workflows are so different and their choices are so different but you can hear how they're all valid and really interesting as far as mistakes what Mm. are some of the biggest mistakes you've made whether they're audio mistakes or business mistakes Mm. or personnel mistakes Mm -hmm. and what did you learn from that mistake or mistakes right you know i'm a little bit of a control freak and i have a hard time sharing and setup, so to speak. Like I was just talking about Adam and Jesse and these guys and how they were really open to me and to helping me out and educating me and, and for me being involved. And because I'm so focused on trying to make sure that everything's right when the client's there, we had an intern program at Fantasy. And mm-hmm. I realized that I would close off to the interns at times. And I don't think that that's 
fair to them because that's a big part of what they're there for is to learn from us. And I think that one of the biggest mistakes I made was not really opening to them and allowing them to participate with me, you know, and it was, it was something that I worked on as I went along. I just knew about myself that I had a tendency to just do it rather than going through something with them. Mm-hmm. And that was a big thing for me to learn to take a step back, take a deep breath, do it, walk through with them and really do that. And then also that completely separated, always triple check everything, triple check your patches, <laughs> triple check absolutely everything. Cause there's always that time when you're like, everything's right, everything's great. And then talent walks up to the mic and there's no signal <sighs> or it's a buzz. And you're like, what the hell happened? And you set up the night before and you double checked everything, but you didn't turn on the tube mic or you didn't turn on the LA2 or something like that that morning when you got back in. And it's just about signal flow, check it, heads to tails, always. Do you have a hard time delegating or you're talking about the interns and, and sharing knowledge yeah. or is it hard for you to delegate? It is. It, it's hard for me to delegate. I, I have a really tough time doing that. Yeah, it's just... I have a plan, and this goes back a little bit to what you were asking me earlier about, do I get out a yellow pad and plan everything out? And I don't do that. I go through it in my head and kind of plan it all out and map it in my head. So it's hard for me to trust that I can clearly explain some that to somebody and then that they can also execute it in the way that I need them to. Mm. And again, it's something that I need to work on is to, to be a better delegator. Often I'm just like, oh, I'll just do it myself. Don't worry about it. What financial or business advice do you have to give to other audio pros and and whether they're audio pros or up-and-comers. One of the things that I always told the interns was, and I know some people disagree with this, but I, I still believe it, is never to devalue yourself and to never do anything for free. Mm-hmm. And when I say for free, I don't mean that you have to get paid for it in dollars and cents, but do work in trade. If you're starting out and you're building your website and you know a guy who's a web designer that has a band, mm-hmm. do their record and they build an admin your site for a year or something like that. Do it in trade or... There's a singer-songwriter that wants to do a three-song demo with you. Have them cook dinner for you three nights a week for a month while you're doing the demo or something, you know. Always have worth to your work and always apply worth to your work one way or another because if you're just out there doing work for free and just giving it away from free, then people don't appreciate you and they it's not that they won't respect your work, but they won't respect it as much as they should. At least that's been my, my take on it. Mm, I'm 50 now. And I'm looking ahead to the future and I'm thinking, okay, what does the future hold for me? How do I want to live my life? And, you know, I think to myself, I don't really want to retire. I want to keep doing audio until the end. Yeah. But I want to be able to do it in a little bit different way than I've been doing it. And I'm curious, what are your plans? Have you thought about the future? Have you thought about any kind of retirement or how you're going to live? We have a lot of things that could challenge our existence Hmm. on the horizon, but people still need us. So what are your thoughts on the future for yourself? Keep doing what I'm doing for sure. Like you said, I, I love what I do so much. And I there's no better place to be than in the studio working with a band, working on a project that if I live to be 125, I want to work until I'm 124 and 364 days. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I'm right there with you. There's always the dream of buying a property somewhere mm. in an underserved market, so to speak, in a place where they're just aren't studios and setting up a fantastic, amazing destination facility that can service the local music industry, but then also be a great destination place for top acts. But <laughs> that's a that's a dream. <laughs> just a, a place that's, that feels like you could have walked into the village recorders or capital or something, 
but it's in the middle of Montana or something like that, or just someplace picturesque and beautiful where you can detach from everything. We've been talking about mostly bands, and you've mentioned post-production work. What about other types of audio? Do you bring that in? Do you try to do audiobooks or podcasts or anything like that? Or do you diversify your audio? Absolutely. So like I was mentioning with the car, it's big. I can throw a bunch of stuff in there and take it wherever I need to. There's a podcast called The Nocturnists, which is doctors, physicians telling stories. And there is a connection to the medical industry, but it's more about the mindfulness and the things that they're doing. So I'll take all my gear out there and I'll go record four hours of them doing interviews with different doctors from all over the place. Or they'll do a live event, like they did one at the Brava Theater, and I'll take my gear over there and record their live event. I used to also do work with W. Kamau Bell for his podcast. I did work for If Then, the Slate podcast. So yeah, definitely work with podcasts out there. And then audiobooks, I've done work with Audible, with Brilliance, which I think they may have been bought by Audible. I could be totally wrong though, so... But anyway, yes, audiobooks. I also record commentary for DVD and Blu-ray for Kino Lorber. They do their own releases, and I've done commentary recordings for the Criterion Collection. Hmm. So I try to diversify as much as I can. If, if it has audio involved and I can facilitate, I'm happy to. How do people find out about you? I think, for the most part, it's word of mouth. Okay. It's recommendations. I have a website. And I've gotten a few pings through the website and everything. But I feel like most of the work is, hey, so-and-so told me that I should reach out to you because this is what I want to do. Yeah. Yeah. What's your website? It's albertohernandezaudio.com. Okay. We'll put a link in the show notes to that as well as a link to your LinkedIn page. Thank you. Well, cool. Thank you so much for making time for me. It's great to have you on. And Yeah, no, this was great. Thanks so much. Okay. Well, you take care. Thanks. You too, Matt. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Alberto Hernandez here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. I want to thank everybody that helped out with the show. That includes Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith, the voice. Make sure you head on over to workingclassaudio.com to check out today's show notes. Also, connect with me on LinkedIn. I would love to hear from you. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, 
this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. 